In the debut memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, by author Brian Broom, comes a series of stories in which he shares his experiences of growing up gay and black in Ohio. In this novel, Brian allows the reader to sit with him as he sorts through and wrestles with the memories of his childhood of racism and toxic masculinity. In this episode, we sit down with Brian to dig deeper into these raw, vulnerable, and beautifully written narratives. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Join us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Support for this podcast comes from Park Ave CDs, purveyors of new and used vinyl and CDs, clever gifts, books, and more. This year, Park Ave CDs celebrates 37 years. They'll also be celebrating Record Store Day 2021 on June 12th and July 17th. Visit in-store or online at parkavcds.com for details. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And tonight, tonight, <laughs> we have a very special guest, somebody that made us speechless. We can't write nothing. We were <laughs> stunned. Yes. yes. From, from beginning to end. And uh, we are so happy to have him on uh, this very special episode of uh, the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Um, we like to welcome um, to the podcast, Mr. Brian Broom. He is a poet and a screenwriter. Um, he is a Kay Leroy Ivers fellow and instructor in the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. He has been a finalist in the Moths storytelling competition and won the grand prize in Carnegie Mellon University's Martin Luther King Writing Awards. He has also won a Van Award from the Pittsburgh Black Media Federation for Journalism in 2019. He lives in Pittsburgh and he is the author of his memoir, Punch Me Up to the God, that has come out on HMH Books. We are so happy to have you here tonight. Good evening. Thank you again for coming on to the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How are you guys doing? We're, we're doing good. Now we got the nerves. I think the nerves are making this way. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing good. So um, be, um, one of the most hard-hitting questions that we decided <laughs> that we were going to ask um, this evening is that, um, you know, I did a deep dive in your Instagram account. And I have found that oh, I just need to know, where do you get your eyeglasses from? Cause the system oh. needs to know. <laughs> like the lens, the frames, the frame game. We need to know. I bow to you on that. I hate, you know, I hate to do a commercial. I'm going to have to do a commercial for, I get them online. Like I found this website. I'll, I'll put it in the chat. So it's 
you know, it'll just be me and you. It'll just be me and you that know. Uh, it's just online website. And like, you know, during the pandemic, what can you do but like buy stuff? I was sitting at home just buying eyeglasses, eyeglasses I don't need. I think like subconsciously I was breaking my glasses too, just so I would have to buy another pair of glasses. So I will let you know, I will let you know when we're not recording where I get them. So okay, good, because I, I uh, got my eye exam done back in December and I'm like, I can't decide on what frames I want and I just see yours. So you got to fill me in. Oh, okay. Wait, so hold that on. That's the podcast for tonight. Oh, oh yes. Look at that. Yes. <laughs> I love them. I love them. Love them. <laughs> I, I wasn't gonna wear them, but now that you've complimented them, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave them on for a second. Please, please. <laughs> All right. So now on to the the real yes. the real deal Holyfield questions mm-hmm. for the, for today. So Brian, when did when and how did you decide that you want to write? And most importantly, when were you ready to write about your life? Um, well, this book happened. Um, it's a really strange story. I um I en- I, I went to rehab. Um, because I was in a, a very dark place and I was abusing alcohol and drugs. I had been uh, for a long time in my life. And uh, I went to rehab under duress. And uh, at night, the whole place is quiet, mm. except for my room. I had this roommate who just snored. He snored like a, a, a Mack truck, like he, he, and I was just up nights. Um, and I tried to get moved to another room. They said no. And this guy was just, you know, feet away from me snoring. And I was like, well, you know, what can I do? Uh, and I used to write when I was a kid. Um, and then somebody told me, my cousin told me that, you know, that was, you know, sissified that you shouldn't write, you know, be off in corners, like writing, but I, 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 was in rehab just up nights and I was like, well, I may as well write, you know, I haven't written in a long time. And I started writing these stories um, with a theme and the theme uh, was, you know, how did I get here? How, why am I in rehab? And so I just started writing like the stories that I remembered the most that were the most, um, you know, these sort of watershed moments in my life. And that's where it started. I didn't know that I was writing a memoir at the time, you know, um, I just was, you know, just journaling again, like I did when I was a, a kid. And when I got out of rehab, certain things happened. Um, I started uh, performing uh, around the city that I live in, in Pittsburgh, um, like doing the moth and other local readings. And one day, a woman walked up to me out of the audience and she said, you know, my name is Danielle and I'd like to be your agent. And I was like, I don't know what the hell are you talking about? Like, I didn't know, I didn't know what an agent was or what an agent did or anything like that. And from there, it just kind of, you know, it kind of took off. She said, what are you writing? And I said, well, you know, I have these stories, you know, a lot of which I wrote in uh, rehab and she was like, well, let's just keep moving with that. And so that's how it happened. Um, so now, I mean, I, ha- I still haven't decided that I want to write a memoir, but I guess it's too late. <laughs> it's it's going to be out in a couple of weeks. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, what did you have to weigh when making the decision to share these stories to the world? Like, you know, who 
you were going to talk about in in this in this book and what moments in, of your of your life that you decided that you wanted to share um there were some stories that didn't get included uh in the end some of them were um way too personal um what i had to weigh in my personal life was you know my mother um I think that that was probably the biggest consideration for me. Um, I went to her, I asked her um, about what I could talk about, you know, in terms of her life. And, you know, to my surprise, she was pretty, pretty open, you know. Uh, her quote to me was that that's, you know, it's all melted snow now. Mm. So you can talk about it if you want. But, you know, I had to keep constantly checking in with her um, you know, to make sure, can I write this? Can I write this? My mother's very um, uh, concerned about, she said, you can write what you want as long as you don't hurt other people. Um, as long as you don't hurt, uh, you know, there are some things that um, would hurt other people. Um, so she didn't want to talk about those in the story. So that was a big concern. For me, I think the big question was, you know, at the time, like, how did I get to be so wretched? How did I get to be such a terrible person? <laughs> um, and those were the stories that I, the stories in the book are the stories that I thought, and still to a certain degree, think at the, the, that made me, put me in that position where I was just abusing, where I just wanted to be high and drunk all the time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the amount of self-loathing um, that I felt, um, I think that comes through and uh, I, you know, I want the reader to sort of know that you can come out of that um, if you if you feel similarly or if your life has been similar in any way. Well, let me let me ask you this. You know, you, you spoke about you talking to your mom and I know there are other people mentioned throughout the book, like your friends. Did you speak to them as well? Letting them know that, hey, I'm going to be covering these certain moments in the book. I'm trying to think who else I talked to. Um. <laughs> I can't remember anything about this damn book. Um, <laughs> there were, you know, I didn't speak to, um, I, I spoke to people about locations um, and time frames. Um, a lot of the people in the book, you know, aren't in my life anymore and are unreachable. Um, and I just wrote the story with the most integrity that I could, uh, that I could muster. Like, do not, say anything that didn't happen obviously like um so i think my mother was the only person that i really checked in with because a lot of those people from the past you know they're not they're not around anymore and a lot of the people who had a really great impact on my life weren't weren't my friends <laughs> uh so there's no way i could i could check in with them now did you have anybody that was like can i be in your book did you oh, put yeah. your story in the book oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> You know what? You either should, if you wanted to be in my book, you should have either treated me better or treated me worse. Right? <laughs> Those middle of line people. Yeah, you can't just be middle in, in the middle of the road, like wanting to be in my book. I have a lot of people who've joked around because they haven't read it yet. And, and they're like, you know, if I recognize myself, you know, I'm coming after you. But um, yeah, I've had, you know, just jokingly people, uh, you know, say, but there are people, there are people that I kind of know who are in the book, who um, I kind of know a little bit, they're around, you know, and they may recognize themselves. What I found really interesting is, you know, um, you know, with my mother even, like, 
when these, these, these big, huge things that happened to me, um, but she doesn't remember them like at all. Like there's a, there's a, a, there's a big a part in the book about a pink shirt. Um, and I, and I was like talking to my mom, like, you remember that? She's like, no, I don't remember this at all. She's like, boy, I got three kids. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember every little thing that happened to you. But like for her, it was a, you know, a, pa- a passing moment. For me, it was this big, huge deal. And I think that's amazing that, you know, if anybody, any of us, like these huge moments in your life and, you know, you turn to the person that you're next to and, and, and they just don't even remember. I think that's so special that we have, we go through life with these moments that are just for ourselves. Um, and that's what a lot of the book is as well. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that, that your mom doesn't even remember the pink shirt. Cause my dad would deny up to this day that he doesn't, he didn't do whatever he did when we were younger. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There was this time when me and my, we were three girls, me and my sisters were eating porridge. And then I guess my sister's like hair was just in front of her face. My dad just cut it, just cut it like that. Like we were eating. Now he's like, I never did that ever, ever, ever. (laughs) And now that we're older, we talk about it, we joke about it. But that moment, me and my sisters were like, what the living fuck is happening? Because I was the oldest, and then it was the sister, and we were just like, "Holy hell, what did you do? Like, what's your food in the like?" My, my I guess my sister was like, "Well, Dad said like, because my hair was in front of my face, and he didn't like how it looked." That was and so he just he just cut it, cut it. And, and so when you when you talk to him now, when you say, "Dad, do you remember that time when you cut sister's hair?" It no memory, no memory, and like, did I do that? Did yeah. that happen? I didn't do that. Yeah. My mom does this thing where she's like, you know, that sounds like something I would do. That sounds like <laughs> something. So nothing is out of character. But like, you notice he didn't say I would never do that. He just was like, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, mm, I don't I don't think so. I'm like <laughs> more things, more things. But I'm like, what? Parents denying. Oh, yeah. Denying. So why was Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, The Medium You Chose, um, to use as the outline of your memoir? Um, you know, that poem, I discovered that poem late. I mean, it's been around forever, but I felt when I read it, I, I thought, like, this is a mini treatise on Black masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, if you, if you listen to her talk about the poem, she says, you know, she was walking by a pool hall and she saw... Um, some really young men who, who, who she thought were probably too young to be in the pool hall, like doing, you know, boys, basically doing some very manly things, you know. And as I read through the poem, I thought these things, each line, I have a story for each of these lines, um, you know. And I kind of thought, I wonder if my stories could kind of like, you know, make the poem or have the poem read differently. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, the poem reads like straightforward, we real cool, we left school, you know, it talks about what these boys are doing, but I wanted to insert different, uh, a different vantage point for each line, because again, to me, I thought it was, um, you know, I thought she's writing about black masculinity. And then when I went and I looked it up, I found that Bell Hooks wrote a whole book 
um, about, uh, not about the poem itself, but the title of the poem is We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity. Um, and I immediately got the book. And then I realized it is bell fucking hooks. Like it was so dense and intellectual and smart. And I was like, I am too dumb to get this, but I can tell a bunch of stories, you know, um, <laughs> you know, cause she was like getting all deep and I, I would, I would make out, I could make out a lot of the things that she was saying, but I thought, well, you know, what if I took the lines and I just told these stories that I have um, about my life and applied them to the lines? So that's how it came about. It was, you know, again, you know, the, on the labor of black women, <laughs> I, I have, <laughs> I've created a book, a masterpiece of my own. Um, so yeah, that's how it came about. To me, it was brilliant. Yeah, that's a is a good take on that on that poem because I I remember being in tenth grade and having that poem presented to me by this white lady who did not like teaching us black kids, and so you mm-hmm. know it was one of those things that she just quickly covered but didn't dive into, right. it wasn't until, you know, I'm, I'm older and, you know, like being in college and it comes up and having this discussion about this, you know, just these few short lines on what this poem means. So what you've done with it is, is remarkable. Um, you unfold your stories in this very intricate way uh, by weaving your past experiences as a young child and those of you as a young adult. What is it that you want the reader to understand about how healing from trauma is not linear process, as well as the time that it takes one to be able to confront the ways that those particular points in one's life are connected. Whoa, shit, woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's my one good question for this interview. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so let's take it in, let's take it in pieces. Um, what was the first part of it again? I'm so the sorry. The first part is what do you want people to know about the 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 uh the healing from trauma that is not a linear process oh it's yeah um you know i am somebody who is uh an addict and i will always be an addict you know there is no finish line um in terms of um being an addict right and there's no finish line in terms of your trauma you know you are constantly working through it day in and day out. You are being, you know, self-reflective about it. You know, that's the most important thing to me is to try to be self-reflective about it every day. You know, I have to remember that, you know, horrible people were horrible to me. And then I turned around and was horrible to other people. Um, And I want that, you know, that cycle to end with me. Um, it is, it, you know, it's funny because it's like, what, if it, if there's no finish line, what are we doing? You know, if there's no finish line, if I can't run through the the tape and be like, I'm now healthy, then what are we doing? And I think it just, for me, you know, that is what life is, you know, about the process of, of, uh, of, of healing, you know, you know, are you, are you healed by the time you're dead? Who knows? Um, but you have to keep, cause those old things still, regardless of what you say, I don't care what anybody says, those old things still affect you. Um, they affect your relationships. They affect how you treat other people and you just have to be cognizant of that. Um, there's no, you know, looking back is, is, 
can be a healing thing, but you don't want to stay back there um, either. You know, I hope that answered the question. I don't know. Yeah, I actually that. answered both both of them. Oh. So. Okay. Ooh, I'm better than I thought. <laughs> in the beginning of your book, you speak about how you ended up in a spelling bee. Do mm. you think that you would have been met with the repercussions if you had won that, had won that contest? You know, I often think about that. First of all, I will never, ever, ever. That's you know, speaking of like the past. I will never misspell that word again. It is it is tattooed on my brain. I could spell it in my sleep, but whatever. Like um, if I had won that spelling bee, if I had won that spelling bee, you know, I don't know that things would have changed much in my immediate surroundings. I, I in fact, you know, I think if I had, things may have in fact gotten worse. <laughs> um, in my immediate surroundings, because, you know, at the time it was a much light, less enlightened time. Um, and I was surrounded by people who did not think black boys were smart, did not think black boys should strive to be smart, um, thought academic pursuits were for pussies. Um, it was, you know, it was the whole enchilada in terms of like stereotypes. If you are a black boy, you are meant to play sports and, and, you know, and that is what you do. And then, and you are tough and cool and you are um, nonchalant and stoic, you know, but I was interested and curious and, you know, um, and was kind of bookish and, 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 you know, and that, and the seventies and eighties were not a welcoming time for that um, in, in boys in general, but, especially in black boys. So I think if I had won that spelling bee, um, it may have in fact gotten worse for me. Um, Do you think it would have gotten worse on both ends from like, from the teachers that you were having to, having those troubles with as well as like the other black students that were at the yeah. school? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. um, my teachers, you know, when I was growing up were, I had a, I had a couple good ones, but they were all white, um, all white teachers. Um, and they were, and I'm not ashamed to say that they were malevolent. Like they just, they were, they did not like black people. Um, and I, I look, I realized that looking back now, but, um, at the time I just thought that there was something wrong with me. You know, the teachers don't like me, you know, I internalized all of that stuff. And I think that that colored the rest of my life. Uh, up until, you know, very recently, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think the teachers would have gotten meaner. I think that, they, you know, I was constantly being accused of uh, cheating uh, when I would write things, you know, uh, who did you cheat off of? And I think that they, I think on some level they knew I wasn't cheating. Mm -hmm. um, they just wanted to discourage me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To me, that was very, very painful. Um, cause I really respect intelligence a lot. So to me, that was really like for adults to treat children like that was really disheartening. Um, and I was just, I, w I was just feeling for you when, when she was like, when they were like, oh, you know, did you really write that? And to me, to me, that was really fucked up. Yeah, it was. It was the, per it's the perfect way to describe it. It was fucked up. Um, and you know, but in, like you said, in healing, like thinking back, it's it's a it's a relief to tell myself like it wasn't it wasn't you, Brian. Like it wasn't you. 
Um, and sometimes, you know, in present day, when I get all, you know, uh, stressed out or, or, or something, somebody has said something to me and I can't process it, sometimes it isn't me. You know, sometimes it's it's about it's more about them. So, you know, I definitely learned that, I think, from my when I was in my in my known inch um, in with with my teachers. This is definitely a book that can that needs that should be recommended for everybody to read. <laughs> um, it misses nobody. It misses no one. You, you have the teacher from from the man, especially the black man, to sit with what is written in this book. Um, so in the later years of your book, um, you speak about your struggles with drug and alcohol abuse and the conver conversations you had while in rehab. What was the turning point for you when you decided that you had enough and that you wanted to move forward in a, in a different manner? Um, it was actually in rehab. When I originally went to rehab, I'm gonna tell you the truth. I was like, I'm just gonna shut these people up, meaning like my, my friends. I'm gonna go here. I'm gonna stay like a week. And honestly, I was, I was, I was like, maybe I am, you know, hitting the gas pedal a little too hard lately. Um, I went to rehab because a, a couple of weeks before I, I had woken up next to a dog um, in somebody's backyard. Mm -hmm. I, it was the morning time. I was at a bar. I know that I was at a bar like nearby and I woke up at like, you know, five o'clock in the morning next to in, in somebody's backyard. They had a dog house. I had no idea like how I got there. I remember vaguely some stuff about how I got there, but, um, and I told a friend of mine about that and he was like, that's not funny. I told him that like, you know, I was like, ha ha, guess what happened? And he said, that's not funny. You know, you're, you're a black man. Can you imagine those white people waking up and like seeing you like in their backyard, like they, anything could have happened. It's not funny. Um, and they also told me, you know, if you don't get your shit, get your shit together, like we're just not going to be friends anymore. So my big plan was, you know, I'm going to go sh shut him up, make every make nice, make everybody think I'm doing OK, you know. But when I got there, um, I found out that I couldn't fool anybody. Mm. You know, that the the uh, the staff of the place that I went to had heard it all before, you know. Um, you know, I was I was all about I don't really belong here. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. But I remember it was just like it was one of those nights I was sitting up and um, they had given me medication for anxiety and they had given me medication for depression. And I don't know if it kicked in <laughs> or what, but I was like the way I've been living my life is truly fucked up, you know, the way that every everything that I, everything just sort of came to me you know, in waves, you know, like the way that I had been treating people. Uh, I treated people as a means to an end, you know, whether it be, you know, drugs, sex, money, you know, I didn't, I was using people. I wasn't a good person. And that knowledge just washed over me. And the question became, well, do you want to be a better person, you know, or do you want to go back out there um, and just do the same shit all over again. Is that making you happy? Yeah. Um, and so I, the rehab that I went to, like you could, 
you know, you could sign yourself out if you wanted to. It would have been very easy for me to, um, you know, sign myself out, ask somebody to come pick me up and, and be like, I went. But I decided to stay. I stayed through I stayed through Christmas. Um, and I made some friends. Um, there are some people that I made friends with who have died um, because of their addictions. Um, that's, but that's when it became clear to me. And, and also, I, you know, I met a really nice woman when I was in rehab who's in the book um, who said, you know, you don't have to continue to be this. Like you can, you can be better. Um, and you can't keep, uh, I remember she also said, you can't keep living out your hurt every day. You know, was that a patient? She was, yeah. Um, she was uh, in, in rehab with me and she just, you know, she just talked so much sense, you know, it was like her third go round, <laughs> but she was, she was getting better, you know? Um, and she said, you know, you don't have to continue to be this person. Like you can be a, a, a different person. Why don't you try why don't you tried everything else you've tried. Your way is not working, you know? Um, and so when I got out, I, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to, my, because my plan was like the, the minute I got out, I was going to go to a bar. That was my plan going in. And when I got out, um, my friend picked me up and I had him take another way home because I was like, I want to pass all those bars. And then I was just like, I went home and I did nothing but go to meetings and go to work and come home for and write. Um, and that's, you know, how it all started. I was afraid to leave the house because I was terrified that I was going to relapse. Mm. Um, and that's when I started doing, uh, I, I missed people a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started doing readings and shows in order to be on stage and still kind of be around people, but not have to really interact with them. Um, so that's how it ended up. That's how I've ended up here. Like just a series of weird choices. <laughs> <laughs> how did you come out? to your to yourself because it's one thing to come out to other people but you know how did you come out to yourself and um when did you find that you were ready to fully embrace your sexuality it's it's been a long year and I'd like to embrace somebody else's sexuality right now (laughs) because it's been a long time um I I came out, I think I came out um, when I found a, a community, like uh, I, I, I found some people who were encouraging. And it was when I probably in my, you know, my 20s, you know, um, that is when I, I think I finally was just like, yeah, that's, this is it. Um, I didn't have a real big moment I never had a real big like coming out moment it was like um I the best sort of visual analogy I can come up with is like if you're standing on the bank of a river and the river's flowing and the river's flowing and you're kind of scared to jump in um you know but once you do you don't think about the riverbank anymore (laughs) you just you know you're just floating along that's kind of how my coming out was so there was no real big moment um you know I told my mom um, you know, she wasn't especially happy at first, um, but we have grown together in that, in, in, in that, um, 
but you know, I think she always knew. Um, so there was no, there wasn't any big coming out moment. I just kind of dove in and started swimming. So James Baldwin's work has served the generations that have followed him as, as a guide to see what life is and how life sees us. What was in it about his work that lit the fire in you to go all the way to France? What did you feel you gained or learned about yourself while you were there? Um, first of all, like, um, you know, James Baldwin, I do like his work. Um, I do like his writing, but it's not like he's my favorite writer. Um, I like the way he lived. Um, I am an admirer of the way he lived in this completely unapologetic way, you know, um, but he always seemed, kind of, you know, whenever you see him, he seems angry, but there was also uh, a, a joyful and playful side to him um, that, you know, often gets ignored. Um, so it's not, it wasn't really his work. It was like, I was looking at his life and uh, just YouTubing all his, like these interviews that he did um, where he just spoke the truth and he spoke it to power and he spoke it plainly. Um, so that's what made me want to go. I was like, maybe there's something about, you know, France that brings that out in a, in a black American, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's the key. I also just kind of wanted to pre to pretend I was him for a little bit. Like if that makes any sense, like I just kind of wanted to cosplay him. Um, for a little bit. And so when I went to Paris, um, I was terrified. Um, I never traveled internationally before. Uh, and I have anxiety. So I was just like, you know, and I got there. It's, be it's beautiful. Um, and when I started um, traveling around, I started getting comfortable taking the metro. Um, and I got, I sat down on the metro, it's super crowded. And I noticed that I, this white woman just came in, like, it's really crowded. Like she came down and just sat right next to me. And I thought this would never happen. I don't think this would ever happen in the United States. You know, not that I need like some white woman to sort of make, make me feel regular, but I was like, I don't feel that pressure. I don't feel that, that, um, that the weight of my skin color, it, here as I do in America I and as I kept going through France and I also went to Nice like you know I just noticed that there was something missing you know from my behavior I wasn't um I didn't feel self-conscious about my blackness because nobody gave a fuck yeah. you know um and I'm not again I say in the book I'm not saying that you know, France is some sort of nirvana for, for Black people. There's anti-Blackness there too. I'm saying that when I was there in Paris and in St. Paul de Vence and in Nice, um, I, I noticed no, I, in me, no feeling that I had to protect myself um, or I had to be careful where I went um, or I don't want to go into this, you know, I was in Nice and they had like some of the most expensive stores and like, uh, and also in Paris, like, I felt no uh, hesitance to walk in there and nobody was like following me around and like, you know, and assuming that I was a criminal. So I just felt the weight of all of that lifted when I was there. So what I learned about myself is that again, I had been carrying this weight um, with me 
and what I learned about my surroundings is that America makes all this shit up. Yes. Um, you know, it's also constructed and it's also um, meant to keep people feeling about themselves the way that I was feeling about myself. Mm-hmm. You know? It's meant to make me self-conscious. It's meant to make me walk on eggshells, you know? So um, that's what I learned uh, in traveling abroad. Anti-Blackness is, is a thing that certain people invented so that they could, um, you know, have power over other people. And it has nothing to do with me. Right. Yes. Right. But that is, but until I think you reach a point of like, you know, knowing that it's not you, it's them. It's so hard to see that, especially if you like, when you grow up, people are just drilling that into you. You see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, and that's the, that's one of the things in the book, like people were drilling it into me every day. And I believed all of it. Um, and I, one of the, one of my biggest regrets, I think in life is that I didn't write, I didn't realize sooner that it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with them. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy I did learn it eventually because I think the rest of my life is going to be lived differently as a result. And we are grateful for it. It's the trick. It's the trick of racism, right? To yeah. Oh, yeah. It make you think that something is real that it isn't. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, you don't see the magician <laughs> behind the curtain. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I hope that people get from the book. Like, you know, this is when this is all a lot of this stuff happened before I knew what a complete, you know, I shouldn't just call it a joke, but what a complete, you know, uh, uh, illusion it is um, like you said the magician like a lot of this stuff happened before I knew that this is the construction of uh, you know somebody who just wants power over somebody else mm-hmm. and it's a it's a load of lies and and I hope that somebody reads this book who is still kind of stuck in that place and realize and I hope it can help them get out of that place including myself because there's I still have like internalized stuff that I'm working through. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about Ohio. You lived in, you're born and raised in Ohio. And yeah. you know, I, I just recently had a conversation with a, a friend of mine explaining how racist Ohio was. And he did not, it, it was, he was like, what, Ohio? And I'm oh, like, yeah. yes, Ohio. Ohio, <laughs> Ohio um, is not a joke. It's not. So what I want to know is how long did it take you to return to Ohio, was it the was it the death of your father, or or did something else bring you bring you back that happened? I stayed, you know, and that's another regrettable thing in my life too. I stayed away from Ohio for a long time. Now I don't like Ohio, but I do like my family. Um, but I stayed, I and mean, I'm not that far away. You know, I stayed away from Ohio for a long time, and I just I created this whole new persona for myself in Pittsburgh. I lied about where I was from. I lied about my family. I lied about, you know, how much money we had. I just created this web of lies that, you know, uh, that was comfortable for me in, in, in Pittsburgh. Um, and then I would go home and I, you know, I would be all ashamed again. Um, I would go back for visits. You know, I would go back for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I would ruin family holidays because I would just get shitty drunk you know 
Um, so I only consider myself going back to Ohio within those these past eight years that I've been sober. I've been going back and really talking to my mother and really talking to my sister and really talking to my brother. These are the first visits I've had. There's a big stretch of time where I would go home, but it was worthless. You know, I would you know, uh, go to my room. I would get drunk. I would, you know, sometimes take drugs. I, you know, would take money from my mother's purse. Like, I mean, those weren't, that wasn't me going back. Now I'm going, now I'm going back. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother, speaking of which, this heifer, let me just tell you what my mother did. <laughs> She coming for a visit, right? And she was like, uh, I was like, well, you know, I can get you a uh, get you a hotel. And she was like, well, what about this hotel? So I'm like, no, you know, I'm gonna get you a, a nice hotel. Like, like, we don't want you staying at the at the Super Eight. We get you a nice hotel. And she was like, well, I can pay for it, baby. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna pay for it. And she was like, well, this is what she said to me. She said, I'm gonna let you pay for it because I don't want to block your blessing. <laughs> She didn't want to stand. She didn't want to. She didn't want her pocketbook to stand in the way of the Lord blessing me for doing something good for her. Because she also knew that if it did, it would be blocking her blessing as well. You know what I'm saying? So look, you know I had to lay down that card and get my mother that good room so I can get my blessing. So yeah. But, you know, now we have moments like that, whereas, like, I think before, you know, she was anxious about me. And and I also think about how much in those years and those many years where I wasn't in contact at all, mm-hmm. you know, how worried she must have been um, for me. So, it's, you know, a lot of years uh, were, in my opinion, wasted. You can't make up for them. You can only just try to have the best time that you can while you know in the present you have um a, a really good line in your book where you're talking about how it is important to have those conversations with your mother because you will learn a lot about yourself because they knew you from they yeah. know your origin story yeah that like that hit me that resonated so much because that's something that i have been working a lot on of like having those conversations and not only just my origin story, but, you know, of hers as well, because sometimes we as children, we forget that our parents were children like us. Oh yeah. Had those same experiences like us. Oh yeah. You know, that, that well of uh, knowledge there definitely, definitely will help. um, Yeah. All that information in. Yeah. Uh, my mother, you know, when I when I sat down to interview her for the book, you know, like I said, she was very open. And it just as she was speaking to me, like, you know, I just it just dawned on me like this woman had a whole ass life before I was born. Who do I think I am? You know, um, she made mistakes. She did some great things. She did some, you know, some not so great things. She thought she knew everything, just like I thought I knew everything like you know, it's amazing. I heard a quote one time. It was like, it's amazing how smart, how much smarter your parents get as you get older. <laughs> they were so dumb when you were a kid and now they just get so smart as they, as you get older. Isn't that a coincidence? You know? Um, yeah. So that's, that's what I think about when I think about my mom as well. Like, you know, oh, gosh, she's so smart now. I don't know how, I don't know how she got that way. She must be reading something like, yeah. 
She must be in a self-help thing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really connected when you were talking, like, especially when you were talking about, you know, the relations you have, you know, with, with your mom. Because as an Asian person, communication is not our greatest forte. Mm, I've heard that. This is this is what we fall we fall we fall short, getting shorter sometimes. <laughs> but now, like me as a as a mom, and her as a mom, and I'm like, well, that makes sense now. I'm like, you little shithead was not thinking when you were younger. I was all in my feelings. Yeah. And, oh yeah. I I was like, I was so unfair. I think to my mother. Like I I think I write in the book like. You know, I had I had to stop I had to stop judging her long enough to listen to her, um, and I think that's a that's a um, that's something we should afford all of our parents. Yeah. You know, um, you know, they, they had reasons maybe for doing things that they did. You know, they're not always um, justifiable reasons. You know, in cases of like abuse and things like that, but like you know, maybe gain a little bit of un, of, of understanding as to why, so you don't you know, internalize the wrong thing. Yes. Uh, and yes. carry that with you. Yeah. So Brian, you have captured us with your writing. You have taken us with your journey. What was the hardest thing for you to write in this memoir? Oh boy. Um, there were a lot of hard things, you know. Um, I th think just confronting you know, how I was, you know, how selfish I was, um, you know, I had to kind of re I had to kind of think about that, you know, as I was writing certain parts. Um, the hardest thing I think was writing about my father, um, you know, because I definitely have heard some, um, some feedback from people who, have come come pretty hard at my father you know um because of the way that he is portrayed but i tried to make sure that the reader understood that he had his reasons too um and it's been hard to sort of um listen to people cast him as the villain you know as the bad guy and he did some bad things but what i tried what i hope to what i hope comes through is you know he did he did these things because he didn't know any other yes. you know he was kind of trapped and his mental health was was failing you know um i believe that he suffered just like i do from anxiety and depression and had no outlets you know and there wasn't and it was again a less enlightened time um so it was just it's hard to be this you know, and, and finally, I think it's hard to be this naked on the page. Mm. You know, in a couple of weeks, everybody's going to know my business. Uh, <laughs> you know, and some people that I told elaborate lies to. I, I mentioned that I, you know, I used to lie a lot and just make up stories about myself. Some people uh, don't know that, right? And like, so they're going to read this book and be like, this nigga was lying the whole time. <laughs> I knew this motherfucker wasn't shit. That's exactly, you're going to hear a chorus of people saying that, you know. Um, so that's going to be difficult too. Um, those were hard things to write. Um, and, but, you know, 
as much as I want people to enjoy the book and to get something from it, it was also pretty healing to get this all out there. You know, I have to say, um, there are no more skeletons in the closet, you know, um, and I feel a little bit freer in having written it. Yeah, but I think it's also really brave because we were talking to one of our, like we were doing an interview with a writer too last week and she was like, you know, I don't know how nonfiction writers do it because everything is out there. Like mm -hmm. if in fiction, you can like tweak and stuff like this is loosely based on my life. But yeah. the nonfiction writer is, you know, for you, the, the world can just judge and they can say whatever they want. And then it's it's also kind of like, you know, that fear of like, here we go again, all eyes on me. Yeah. But I think when you said that it, it's, you know, it was some sort of like therapy for you, like all this release, I bet that feels really good, though. It does. But, it, you know, I, I, don't get don't get it twisted. Like, I'm also terrified. Mm -hmm. Um you know, but I could, I, I don't think I could have lived out the rest of my life with just not, first of all, I love to write, you know, and the stories that I wrote, obviously, you know, like I said, I was in rehab when I wrote a lot of them, like they wanted to come out. Um, and obviously like if something, I mean, if something wants to come out, like maybe you should, maybe you should give it that opportunity to come out. So yeah, I'm terrified, but I'm also, um, I'm hoping for grace and understanding from people. There are obviously going to be people who, you know, who hate it. Um, and I have to learn how to accept that too. You know, I went through a long, a long time in my life trying to make sure everybody likes me. Um, and you know, fuck that. I mean, if people don't like it, that I have to learn how to me how to let that mean whatever the hell it means for them. That's on them because they block and they blessing. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, that's what I'm gonna tell them. Don't block your own blessing. Yes. Uh, yes. Put that but, on the shirt. Know. Sell that for merchandise when you do your your. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just put mama. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to learn to just to live, you know, and, and, you know, bringing it back to James Baldwin. I don't really think he gave a fuck what people said about him. Um, you know, they called him all kinds of fags and N-words and, and, and like, you know, whatever else. And he just continued to live. So if I'm going to uh, live fully, um, you know, I have to learn how to take the slings and arrows as well as uh, the praise. Yeah. But yeah. don't we all though? Like that, that, that is life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yours is just, you know, out there for the, for the world to admire and see. But yeah. everybody goes through the same shit. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So walk us through how you how you chose to put these pieces together like you know you chose this particular story I know you said you started writing back in when you were in rehab how did you decide like okay I want this one but not that one well a lot of that is great editing I have a really great editor uh Rakia Clark um she is amazing and like bionic apparently um we worked a lot, we worked a lot together to, to try to make sure that the stories were, were the right mix. Um, you know, I, 
uh, and that they that they fell into the right categories and that the flow was was good. Um, there were stories that I uh, I just knew exactly where I wanted them, and she didn't argue with me on that. Um, there were stories that had to be you know sort of uh, changed a little bit at times. Like it was there was no real. It just kind of came together, like you know, just through working with her and just talking it out. Um, that it actually, I think it, 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 it came together, I wouldn't say seamlessly, but, um, you know, it came together, I think, fairly easily uh, in, in, a, in a fairly short amount of time. Because mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted to do. And the great thing about Rakia is that she immediately got my vision for what I wanted the book to look like. And so we were working toward the same thing. Um, and so that was, that was great, but there were times when it got real black and, you know, <laughs> you know, I had my editor call me boy, you know how you like, you know, your grandma call you boy, you're out of your mind. Yeah. Rakia on, on, on more than a couple occasions referred to me as boy and then told me what I was not going to do. <laughs> okay. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So, she knows when she knows best, she knows best, but, um, you know, there were some struggles and there was some, you know, it was, it was like putting together a, a jigsaw puzzle, you know, mm -hmm. some of the pieces fit. And if, and if they didn't fit, we would cheat a little bit and make them fit, you know. But you write with, you know, such rawness, honesty, and conviction though. So your mem your memoir and like the essays that we've read, do you like, you know, with the guardian and stuff like that, stems from this like brilliant mind of yours for all of us to consume. Describe your process when you write. Um, do you have, do you follow a routine or you're just like a genius and be like, okay, this is my thing now. I'm going to have to stop and whatever I'm doing and write this. I want to tell you, I want to tell you honestly that every day I sit down at 10 a.m., and I write until 3 p.m. Wow. Now, notice how I phrased that. I want to tell you that. <laughs> but I can't tell you that because that <laughs> shit is not true. Um, that's a fucking lie. I tell my students that. I'm like, you have to do this. I, you have to be, you know, you have to be on a schedule. And, you know, I tell them that. But I, I'm such a hypocrite. I don't do that. The way that writing happens for me, I write, I write on the bus all the time. Um, whenever I have to take a bus, I take a pen and pad and I like write on the bus. I write, I, you know, that's kind of like my idea jogging place. Um, I write in the little cubby hole in the library and I write um, in my office where I am now. Um, and literally what has to happen for me to write is I, I have this idea. It starts on the bus, you know. And then it starts to swirl around in my head and it, like a tornado, it starts to pick up, you know, lawn chairs and tractors and, you know, then it's finally somebody's house and it's, you know, and then finally, and I just let it rage in there. And then finally it gets to a point where I can't, I'm like, I got to do something about this fucking thing. Like it's driving me crazy. Uh, and so I, I, that's when I will sit down and, and write. Um, and then it all falls apart. <laughs> Like, right, I think I have it all set up in my head the way that it's going to go. And then I sit down to write and it doesn't work. And then I'm just in it 
And, you know, that's how it goes from there. Um, it's a lot of revision, a lot of, um, a lot of toiling, a lot of trying to get it right and not getting it right, writing a whole thing and then being like, this whole thing is terrible. Like, you know, but never throw anything away. You know, uh, you just put it somewhere else and start over again. But I would love to be the kind of writer that was on like a routine, like every day from 10 to three, I will write and drink tea and I will be all writerly. <laughs> Whoever this motherfucker is, like, fuck him. I can't stand him. Like, <laughs> Because I will, I will avoid it and avoid it and avoid it until it absolutely has to be done. I think it was like, Maya Angelou. I think she was telling Oprah, like, I go and I rent out this house, and I go and I it sit and write, and that's where she goes and she writes all her books. Whatever, like, I don't cool. care. How does that work? Like to go and yeah. rent out a space, and then you're done at your your rental has ended and now you have yeah. a whole and now you have a whole book whatever my Angela I don't care <laughs> you so thank you such a, a an artiste yeah. like for me it is for me it is not that I have often thought that maybe I should go to a retreat where there are no distractions but I know that I will I would find something to distract me. I would be pulling out threads in the carpet like to avoid it, you know? Um, but here's the thing I will say, once I get started, you know, let's say I sit down, I do sit down at 10. Once I get started and I get into it, I, I will look up and it'll be like seven o'clock at night. Yeah. Like, because I just, I think I'm just kind of a, a binge writer. Um, and then, you know, the next day I'll come and read it and be like, oh, it's all, the whole thing is terrible, you know, but I have something to work with. But once I do, you know, I, there's that old adage, like, I hate writing, but I love having written, you know, that is me all over. Um, I like to, uh, but I like, I like it while I'm doing it. I just, I have a hard time getting the push into it. I think a lot of people have that, have that issue when they, when they try to write. You were a finalist with the Moth Storytelling, uh, the competition. Are you ever nervous when you're on stage sharing your stories or is that where you find the most peace and freedom to spill all your business, to spill all your business out in the street? Oh, I'm, I, before I get on the stage, I am sure that I'm going to die. Like, I'm absolutely positive that I will be dropping dead of a heart attack. Like, my whole body is, is questioning, why did you do this? Like, why are you doing this? Um, but then I go on stage, um, and by the first couple of words into the microphone, I'm fine. Mm. Um, I feel like, you know, and it's great because, you know, the audience just kind of like disappears like and I don't really know who I'm talking to um uh but yes I get I get super super nervous like I'm actually nervous like two two days before a performance I'll start getting nervous and then it just builds and builds and builds until up until that moment where my name is called um and then I don't know under some power I like walk out there and then I take the microphone which uh acts as kind of like my pacifier you know once I have it I feel kind of like safe um and then again by like the first few words first couple sentences I'm fine I just relax into the story like I really want people to hear the story 
Um, and it's great. Yeah. I can't wait to start doing it again. Yes. Yeah. I bet people have missed you. I hope so. I'm trying to find a man out here too. I'm just like, uh, you know, how are you going to do that without performing? Yeah. COVID is trying to block that blessing too. No. So PSA to anybody that's listening right now, Ryan is available and is ready. So if you wanna, if you if you wanna hit him up, go through us, or you know he's. What you looking for? What you you know? Let us know. I will. I will let you know again in the chat. I will let you know when I give you that uh, the website address for those where I get my glasses. I will also let you know what I'm looking for uh, in a partner. So we can vet them for you. And yeah. You don't have yes, to do work. <laughs> Make sure they're paying you. Don't do this for free. Make sure they're paying you. We first heard you um, through Disha. Oh. And she, while she was complaining that, that you weren't allowing her to read your book. Like, oh she, yeah. She was like, but he won't let me read it. <laughs> but he was championing you and like everybody should know about Brian. What is it, what, how does it feel to be like in a, you know, having that friendship and having somebody oh. to champion you like that? Oh man, Disha is, I mean, first of all, she lives, she doesn't, I, mean, she, I was just at her house like two days ago, I think. Um, and she had food, which I never have in my house. <laughs> she has made me cocoa vin. She has been a confidant. She is hilariously funny. She hates my jokes. Like I tease her like, you know, sometimes it's just fun to tease girls. You know what I mean? Like as a, as a boy, like sometimes it's just fun to tease girls, you know? Um, and, you know, and she just rolls her eyes like, boy, please. Like, um, and she's been instrumental in me in, in, in terms of, of me being able to get this far. You know, I told you I went to, uh, how I met my agent is I went to a reading. Um, and when I got off stage, my agent was like, can I be your agent? That reading was Disha's reading. You know, she asked me to come um, read uh, at, this, at this event she was uh, hosting. And I said, no, no. And she said, come on, come on. And I said, no, no. And she said, boy, if you don't come up here and read, I'm gonna whoop your ass. And, <laughs> So that's that's how I got an agent. And she's just been, um, you know, uh, she's been uh, so supportive and also giving me that push when I needed it. Um, you know, so it's just been great. And her book is doing well. And she's got this deal with like HBO now. She thinks she hot shit. Um, <laughs> that's what I I keep telling her. I'm, I'm in competition with Disha, but Disha is not in competition with me. Like it's the strangest dynamic. I'm like, I, like when she tells me good news, I'm like, eh, whatever. It's not a competition, Disha. And she's like, yeah, nigga, I know it's not a competition. Like, <laughs> but deep down inside, deep down inside, it's only happening with me. Like, I'm the one who feels like I have to live up to her. Meanwhile, she's not competing with me at all. She's very happy for me, and I'm happy for her too. But you know, I'm a little jealous. How'd y'all meet? We. Uh, this is also uh, a uh, a. Uh, a story that's in dispute <laughs> because I think we met through one friend and she thinks we met through another friend and we can't remember. Well, she says she remembers that I'm misremembering, but I think we met 
through our friend, uh, our friend Christina, and she thinks we met through our other friend Chris. You know, Christina's a woman, and Chris is a man. And so we, whenever it comes up, there's just like a, you know, thing. But we met, and um, and then we decided to meet for coffee or something like that. Like we met through one of these people, and then she and I alone decided to meet for coffee and then it just kind of went from there we started like I was like I like this woman and she was like I like this guy and I think we started talking on the phone and then going doing things together you know typical friendship things yeah <laughs> yeah um, I mean, you see her tell her she ain't no big deal either next time you talk to her she, <laughs> she needs to know she needs to be brought down a peg right. <laughs> well, make sure to tell her be like he said it's <laughs> like that and he also said <laughs> exactly tell her everything uh in your book you talk a lot about you going out and dancing and i just want i'm just curious as to like what songs would immediately get you on the dance floor it depends it depends like i was just having a solo dance party by myself in my house last night i mean you should have been here Clothes was coming off. Woo, I was swaying them over my head. <laughs> um, I was just, in, I was like, if anybody's, I got a big window in my living room. I was like, if anybody's out there looking, I don't care. Just in my drawers. Um, I was, I was dancing to Prince's Black Sweat. Um, what else? Um, sometimes, depending upon how you know, uh, how super gay I'm feeling. Um, <laughs> If I'm feeling super gay, it's Dim All the Lights by Donna Summer. I don't know. You might be too young for that. I'm not sure. But <laughs> Donna Summer had a song called Dim All the Lights. When I was a kid, I used to sneak and listen to it because I used to like to act like one of her backup singers. I didn't want anybody singing that. So Dim All the Lights by Donna Summer, Black Sweat by Prince. What else? Boogie Wonderland. Um is a good one too like there's just there's so many like you you've opened up a can of worms like there's a <laughs> lot of songs that um definitely make me want to dance but there's when i think but if you want to talk about my club days yes those days where i wore my my big jenko jeans my fake <laughs> jenko jeans and i had like you know neon and a whistle and a you know the baseball cap turned backwards the whole costume it's a song called Plastic Dreams. Um, it's a house song. And we used to take ecstasy and just go out and like, you know, they could play that song for hours and hours and hours. I don't, it, it's just, you know, it's like house song. It's like a driving beat, right? And I would just dance all night. And occasionally I will hear it now. And you know, 30 years later, it still is probably the number one song that will make me dance anywhere I am, anywhere I am, no matter where I am. I, if I hear it in the grocery store, you know, my top's coming off. Like, it's time to <laughs> if right you're, next to the, if what's you, that? If you had to, like, say this album, if you're reading my book, it would go best with this album. What would you? Oh, I don't think there's a one album. I think, you know, I just did an interview with, um, large hearted boy um which they the, basically it's a website where they ask authors like 
you know, what were you listening to when you read, when you were writing this book? And music was a really integral part of me writing it. Um, I was listening to different songs and trying to get into that headspace. Um, I don't, I would like to make my own compilation album for, uh, you know, uh, for this particular uh, book. You know, it would have, it would have some Shaka Khan, it would have some Donna Summer, it would have some um, Diana Ross. Mm-hmm. It would have some Teddy Pendergrass. Um, it would have that old shit. None of this newfangled stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, it would have that old. Oh, you know what's a, okay? So this is a test. You know the song "I Call Your Name" by Switch. Oh, if you sang it, maybe. Cause I know I'm I'm bad when it comes to the names of a song. Okay, sing it. Oh, you gonna make me sing it? I call your name, girl. Yes, I know. This yes, song. Okay, yeah, yeah. yes. That song it puts me in a lovemaking mood. I don't even like girls. Like it, <laughs> it puts me in a lovemaking mood. Like that would be on there. Um, it was. It, I don't know if there's any one album that would do it, but like it would definitely be like little, little bits and pieces from different artists like throughout the years. We're, so we're waiting for the playlist from Brian. Yes. Um, what we're doing. Because <laughs> um, we, we want those, we want, we want those bops. Yes. yes. We want those bops. Exactly. Yes. I will, I will put together something and send you guys a mixtape. <laughs> yes. We're here for it. So our, one of our hardest questions, they say, because we make authors and writers choose the top five books that have influenced their lives or their favorites, or, you know, your friend Disha flipped it again. And she <laughs> was like, maybe not my top five, but a top five people that I recommend of which you are one of them that she said. Oh, well, I'm not going to do that for her because I'm competing with her. Um, <laughs> although, although her book is amazing. So I'll say that, but like, I have some books that I really think are important, like, to me. One is um, The Kind of Light That Shines on Texas, uh, which is a book by an author named uh, Reginald McKnight. I really like Mary Carr's The Liar's Club. Uh, I really like Jhumpa Lahiri's um, interpreter of maladies. What do I got to do? Five, you said. Mm-hmm. When I was a ki- <laughs> when I was a kid, I read um, Flowers in the Attic Ooh. by VC. I heard about that book not too long ago. Yeah. Wasn't it wild? Oh my yeah. god, that was a trip. I read that you as know. a kid. I'm like, how am I reading this? Who has allowed me to read this book? <laughs> Yeah, it was like you weren't supposed to read it, but I totally read it. It was crazy. Um, that book really made me want to like, I don't know, it's, it's made me want to like write and tell stories and put pictures in people's heads. Um, and what else? What else? What else? What else? I feel like I should be naming something like profound, but you know, I, I you know, I, these are just the ones that are on my mind like today. Um, uh, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, this the new book. I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying. 
is on my mind a lot. Um, I forget the author's name. Uh, she's amazing. Um, so, but these, you know, I'm going to back out a little bit too, but these are just the books that are on my mind, like today, you know, um, tomorrow it'll be new books. I mean, there's just, there's, there's hundreds of uh, books and authors, you know, and stories that have influenced me. I remember when I was a kid reading uh, one of Grimm's fairy tales, and it was a story about the, the five swans. Um, this princess was cursed or cursed and the witch turned her brothers into swans and um, she had to like knit a thing. And it was like, I just remember being so, you know, wrapped up in that story. Like when I was first learning to read well, you know, that I remember thinking like, I want to do something like this, you know, so we could go back that far. Um, but I don't want to bore you with all the, all the books and techniques of writing that I think are great. I also like Stephen King too. Um, I like a good scare. I like, I like being scared in my own house, you know? <laughs> you can't do it, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like I told Veronica, I like to read scary stuff, but I don't like watching it. And then I make her watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> watching it is great. I just watched, okay, if you really want to watch something scary, I'll, I'll recommend the movie oh, for you. Yeah. You have to make her watch it though. Okay. Um, man, why you gotta do this to me, man? Korean Korean zombie movies. Yeah. Oh, that's her husband. Are oh my the God. best. You're one zombie of them Yes, I love them. There's one on Netflix right now called Alive. Okay. Yes, I've heard about that. It is so good. Your husband is absolutely right. And my sisters. Right. You should be <laughs> watching these films. Um, they're really, really, so I do like to, but here's the thing, like I watch them and scare the shit out of myself, but then it's time to go to bed. Yeah. You know? But that's like kind of the fun part a little bit. You know, no, no, there are only two movies for me that have made me afraid to go to sleep. And one is, um, the birds, maybe not asleep, but just to go outside. Like it's okay. Hitchcock's the birds just seeing birds it's just yeah yeah and um oh goodness i can't think of the other movie but it was like they were supposed to die but somehow they escaped it but then death comes back and tries oh yeah that's final destination yes that one (laughs) i I would watch that in college and then i came home and i'm like i i don't know if i can go to sleep tonight yeah it's those are creepy they're creepy that one was good that one was good (laughs) i love crowd country and y'all talking about like that bird but we got through it three times we watched lovecraft we did it we got it good for you good for you so what's next for you uh is there more non-fiction work or are we delving into some fiction some scary stuff but you know i i have um uh i have a little folder on my desk with my ideas um i have just written a uh, a pilot for a, a tv show um, we'll see where that goes, if it goes anywhere. Um, but right now, I think I just, I, I want to go back to teaching um, and um, hopefully get a good teaching job somewhere because I just graduated. Um, well, congratulations, by the way. Yes. Got your thank you. <laughs> I did. Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to look for a, a job. I, 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 uh, I will be teaching next year in California um, for temporarily. 
So I want to kind of get back into teaching and then ease back into my next book. I do have an idea for it, um, but you know, we're just in the we're in the sketching on the bus stages right now. So the time has come. Yeah. The time has come. Uh, yes. Our our OnlyFans meeting has ended. <laughs> <laughs> It has wow. Um, <laughs> and you know, like this is such a really good book, Brian. Mm-hmm. Like we mean it, like from from the innermost being of me. Like I was truly touched. Um I was shaken. I w- like as a mother and as you know, as a child once we were all children, I was like you know, like you, you told a story, like how I have, I have felt it. Like if I was, if I was like you, so I would want to thank you for doing this and being so honest and brave for putting it out there. Mm. Cause it's not easy. Judgment is hard. And, you know, judgment from all these white folks are even harder. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. That really means a lot. Um, to hear really I was looking I was looking so forward to talking to you guys um I it's my honor to be here I'm so happy that you that you enjoy the book like that comes from my heart as well so yeah so please continue writing I will I'm gonna write something scary and make you go watch it (laughs) (laughs) I got that covered oh we just want to let you know that your book will be one of our books of the month for the month of June um, so we're going to make everybody read yes. this book. So yes. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you so much for being with us tonight. And um, we just hope that you have a, a really good rest of your evening. Turn on some music, dance the night away. I and will. Take care. Be safe. Okay. Be safe. And, like, and like my son said, night, night, Brian. Night, <laughs> night. That was the cutest thing ever. Thank you. Bye, right. guys. Bye. Bye. Good night. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.